So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today I'm really excited to be talking to Hirozi Manji, who is a adjunct professor at the Institute of African Studies. Um, welcome to the show, Hirozi. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, the name is spelled with an E, but it's just pronounced Feroz. Feroz. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So as we were getting to know each other a little bit before the show started, I noticed that you have a shirt on with, with Franz Fanon on it, and, and you published a book about Fanon. What, what's the book called? It's called Fanon Today, Reason and Revolt of the Wretched of the Earth. It's the uh, the 60th anniversary of the publication of The Wretched of the Earth, Franz Fanon's famous work. And this is a collection of about 23 or so uh, essays from around the world, from Ireland to, to, to Lisbon, to Mozambique, for, right across the world. And it's been people reflecting. These are, these are not just academic. These are engaged intellectuals who are in, uh, involved in social movements and activism. And, and they reflect on the importance of Fanon for their struggles today. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary collection of book, of, uh, of essays uh, edited by Nigel C. Gibson, who has, has published very widely on, on Fanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we think it's really important for people, especially for the next generation of young activists, to ha- get, become familiar with some of the issues that it's not merely history, it's, it's a living thing for today. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and we're gonna, we're gonna talk about Fanon in the context of a really, really great essay that you wrote, that I read in, in Rope. Well, you say that there's been discontent growing across Africa and that there have been spontaneous eruptions, mass uprisings, and this seems like a, a moment where there would be where there would be the emergence of a strong left working class movement in Africa, but it hasn't happened. And you ask the question, why? Why hasn't it happened? And and you're gonna you're gonna discuss Fanon in that essay, and we're gonna get to him in a sec. But I found this essay fin- fantastic and fascinating, and I'd like to sort of start at the beginning. So to answer the question, why there isn't a left movement, a working class left movement in Africa today? We, we have to go back to the, post, the, the post-colonial moment, right at the beginning, where you talk about something called a stagist view of revolution that the communists had. And I'm wondering if maybe we could begin there. What is the stagist view and what does it have to do with the absence of the left today? It's, it's a belief in, a, in that we have to, um, movement should help encourage the uh, establishment of a capitalist class who can exploit us. And uh, eventually, once they're established, we will then organize to overthrow them. I mean, it's a very bizarre idea. And in a sense, it's a fear of taking an independent role on it. It's also this, this idea that the working class is defined as, as, a, uh, <laughs> as a factory workers, you know? And, and there's this, this sort of macho image of, of proletariat being just those who are in, in industry, but in every place where a revolution has taken place, such as in, even in in, uh, in Russia and in China and in Cuba and in and Vietnam and goodness where else, the reality is the industrial working class is a minority, and 
Amilcar Cabral really understood this and said that actually what we have to understand is that working people, whether they're working on farms or, or otherwise, or who are completely disenfranchised, who are who become part of the wretched of the earth, who are just, you know, who are part of that sacrifice zone that that capital creates, that they are part of that revolutionary movement. And the problem, I think, with the left has been, I think, two, two really key areas. One is that they form political parties whose main aim is to seize control of the state. Now, the moment you do that, then you've already limited the horizons for real progress. Because what has happened in Africa is that there have been movements which have taken over the colonial state. Now, you can't turn the colonial state into something progressive. You either have to destroy it and start again, or you become you have developed a vested interest in power and it's power over people. It's not power of the people. And I think that's the second area which really needs attention to. And that is we, we, we don't listen. We think we have the answers to everything. We've got all the, the Communist Manifesto, all these writings, etc. But the reality is we have to be rooted. We have to listen to the voices of the dispossessed the voices of the wretched of the earth. We have to accept that people think, and therefore if we listen to them, we understand the way they see the world, the way their aspirations, then our task is not the seizure of state power. Our task should be to nurture these movements so that, so that they evolve a, an experience in which they create and it's possible to create popular democracies, not as a way of seizing the state, but rather of creating the alternative to the colonial state. And I think this is really one of the key areas that, areas that, that Fanon was very clear about, as was Amilcar Cabral, the uh, Guinea-Bissau revolutionary. You know, by the time he was assassinated, they had control of two-thirds of Guinea-Bissau. And what was created was in every village, in every uh, rural area, people were organizing and were creating their own methods of organizing, own methods of, of democracy, of electing people who would, would have particular functions and so on. And he was clear, we have to destroy, destroy and burn down to ashes the the colonial state you can't take over it's like saying you can turn a, a tank into a, a, a hospital i mean it's not built for that and the colonial state was built to create two zones one was the sacred zone of the the colonials and their their allies and the other was the rest of us it were just those sacrifice zones and today if one looks in our in our countries in kenya where i'm from you know, uh, the vast majority of the population lives in, you know, landlessness, ho ho without housing, without work, without any facilities. And yet it is precisely they, because they have been so dehumanized 
that they have the most profound understanding of what it means to be human. And therefore, to, to in, in, indeed invent what it means to be human. And, and the socialist project, if one reads Marx, you know, the socialist project is about not only reclaiming, but inventing what it means to be human. And you can't do that with a colonial state. And I think the left has this real illusion that, that all we need to do is to do it for the masses. And that gives no role, no agency to the popular movements. And, and I think that's, that's been the real disaster that, that we've faced. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's, let's go back just for a sec. You wrote and, and you just alluded to the idea that the, the left parties, the communist parties, in, in the 1950s and 1960s in Africa, often help advance the interests of the, the national bourgeoisie in, in Africa. And you already said that that was a mistake. I'm, I'm wondering what was their, what was their thinking um, behind that? And then what role did the national bourgeoisie play after independence? Did they just sort of take the role of the colonial in the state? I mean, a lot of this idea of a stage uh, idea came from a sort of degenerated communist party in, in the USSR, which had a huge influence. It was a, a dogma, basically. It, it had no reality in terms of what was happening on the ground. Now, there's no, no doubt that in the anti-colonial war, it was necessary to forge alliances with as many groups across the, the country as one could in order to achieve some level of, uh, of of way of overthrowing the colonial yoke, but it doesn't mean losing one's independence, and that's where the problem has been. There's been a tendency to say, "Okay, we will become part of the nationalist movement." Look at South Africa today; the Communist Party there became part of the the nationalist movement and has postponed the struggle for a, a socialist world uh, to some, I don't know, um, some future, which, you know, in the meantime, everyone just talks about the National Democratic Revolution. Mm-hmm. But you know, what you had, one of the results of, of independence was that there was, in some sense, a social contract between the masses and the nationalist leaders. And, and for a period, you know, there were major transformations. There's no doubt about that. You know, where I come from, there was no health services for uh, African people. It was just for the colonials. There was no education. There was no water. There was no, all of these, these areas just didn't exist. And within the space of less than 20 years, you know, we had universal health care. We had universal access to water. We had universal access to roads and so on. You know, there was a real transformation uh, that, that occurred. So one has to give credit where it was due. But what happened in most cases was that once in power, the nationalist bourgeoisie, the the emerging ruling class, did not want centrifugal forces pulling away from from their agenda. Mm 
And so you saw the assassination of popular leaders. You saw their imprisonment. We saw their disappearances and their exile. And it was a real tragedy. I mean, and, and look at, you know, Thomas Sankara was, was assassinated by his own comrades, you, you know, the nationalist in, in his movement. The same thing happened effectively to, to Nkrumah. It happened to Patrice Lumumba. And, you know, and, and Fanon has, was absolutely clear that there was no possibility for the, the so-called national bourgeoisie to play any kind of progressive role, historical role, because there was no room for it. They, they'd come too late to the party. Everything that could be privatized had been privatized by capital, mm-hmm. by transnational corporations. You know, once the structural adjustments happened in the 1980s with the rise of uh, Thatcher and, and Reagan, what you see is the privatization of the commons. Of anything that could make a profit, they privatized in the interests of transnationals. And there's a myth that the African governments were forced to accept this by the World Bank and by, by the IMF. The reality is our bourgeoisie understood very well that by allowing and making this happen, they could accumulate at a stupendous pace. Mm. And if you look today, you see how you have a small number of extremely rich people and the vast majority are completely uh, impoverished. And that, that's because our bourgeoisie understood the advantages of accumulation. Uh, the moment they got into these structural programs and formed ally- alliances with, with their transnational corporations, well, you know, immediately the mon- money was moved up to, mm-hmm. to banks or in the U.S. or offshore. And one looks at, you know, the president of, of South Africa today, a, a former trade unionist leading a light in the trade union movement. He was the guy responsible for the implementation of the massacre of the Marikana mine workers mm-hmm. just years ago. And, and in a, a whole approach, which was exactly how the apartheid and colonial state used to operate. And now he's the president and he's also on the board of, of, of several transnational corporations, including uh, the ones at Marikana. Uh, so, so, you know, we, we, ha- we do have a situation where we have empirical evidence. We can see that road towards state power, that road towards perhaps even a social democratic approach, but basically saying, you, you know, we can take this, the, the colonial state and make it behave nicely. Mm-hmm. You know, like trying to make tigers into vegetarians. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, so, so what you quote Fanon, and you say that he describes, he says, the national bourgeoisie discovers its historical mission, that of the intermediary. As yeah. we can see, its vocation is not to transform the nation, but to prosaically serve as a conveyor belt for capitalism. So an example of that, you know, would be Africanization, or you say in South Africa, it's the Black Economic Empowerment Movement. What were those movements and when did they come about? One thing that happened in almost all the countries across the continent was that the state and its infrastructure, its judiciary, its police, its armed forces, its lawyers, etc., they were nothing was changed there. All that was changed 
was that they were Africanized. That is to say that where formerly they were they were Europeans, now we we have them replaced by a black petty bourgeois or, or, or bourgeoisie in, in the making. And 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 the, the, their function has not changed. I mean, you know, they, they, they still follow colonial uh, laws. They still, I mean, in South Africa, you, you have one of the best uh, um, constitutions and a bill of rights. I mean, it's, it's amazing. But, but, you know, if you actually look at what is happening, what you see is that while everyone in South Africa has rights, only some have the right to rights. Take example, for example, uh, if if a police wants to wants to search your house, in the middle class areas, in the in, in the rich areas, they have to provide a search warrant. When it's they want to search the house of people in in the ghettos, they just go in and smash. They kill. They wound. They smash everything around, and they're completely unaccountable. And, and so you have this dilemma. You have on the one side in the sacred space, you have, uh, <laughs> you have the right to rights. Everyone else does not have the right to rights, even though it is formally available in the Constitution mm -hmm. and the Bill of Rights. Thoreau, I'm wondering, you know, you talk about Kwame Nkrumah uh, as the most radical of the nationalists. Um, but he himself didn't want to dismantle the colonial state. So what was, what was his vision? Well, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's known for his, 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 his view of Pan-Africanism, that, you know, the, that, the, that the whole continent should, should unite. And, 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 and I think he, he, I think it was only once he was deposed that he began to write much more radical stuff. But his fundamental error was that he thought he could take over the colonial state and transform the country. And, and it, it has just not happened there nor any, anywhere else. Um, and the, and the Pan-Africanism that emerged from that, which led to the foundation of the Organization of African Unity and now called the African Union, is essentially a, a, a unity of the ruling classes across the continent. Uh, the, the, the mass of people are not consulted in any of those decisions. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I call myself a Pan-Africanist, but my, my view of Pan-Africanism Pan is that we need to build the solidarity between movements in different parts of the country who are in struggle and who have and manifesting something that they have in common with others on the continent. It is a solidarity of, of, of people who are seeking to transform the world. And, 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 and that's what we need to build. It's not going to be built in Addis Ababa by the, by the African Union. It's not, it was never, uh, going to be of that kind. And indeed, the African Union and the Organization of African Unity whole agenda was to ensure that economically and indeed politically, uh, they were in line with uh, the, the desires of empire and of the transnationals. 
and and so you know that's that's where we we are um and and they see they think that our interests lie with uh, a collusion with uh with the the transnationals i mean you know if you look across africa you know the the biggest biggest mine uh exploiters are canadian uh, um mining companies uh and 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 they are welcomed by the africa union um and it's and it's it is it is that is the kind of alliances that they wish to make and i think there is a counter to that and there are there are movements for example in south africa abakhali basu mjondolo the shack dwellers movement have been extraordinary in the way that they've grown over the last 20, uh, 10 15 years there there were there are 100,000 members all over our Af- uh, south africa uh, and these are shack dwellers who are saying look land uh, cannot be a commodity it belongs to everyone uh, that there is you cannot there's no such thing as an illegal person you can have an illegal act but you can't have an illegal person that you know we have to welcome people from all over the the continent and they've been in the forefront of fighting the the kind of xenophobia that south africa has become known for now and 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 i think that shows that you know amongst the wretched of the earth there is a possibility there is a real tradition in, indeed of seeing humanity seeing a universalist humanity that it is possible to to have an alternate to the the colonial state or the neo colonial state mm-hmm. i'd like to talk about the the movements today um you know you you wrote about the fact that there were african socialist uh, movements that tended to when they took over the, the when they took over the state tended to become one one party um one party states what's so i i don't know if this is true but do you think that some of the some of the failure of the left in africa today is just that socialism has been discredited by those by those uh, past movements and if that's true what under what flag do people rally around now is it is it about privatization about housing costs about food costs how is the left organized today there are different kinds of formations there 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 are many many left groups who call themselves marxists or 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 socialists or communists or whatever but many of them are are expose a dogma uh about socialism uh and who, there's a tendency to to see the 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 wretched of the earth as people with no with nothing in their head that used to be filled with all this dogma mm-hmm. and, and 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 that's that's a problem because it's based on premise that people don't think that they don't have that uh, ability to 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 perceive what the issues are but i think that you know there there are some some instances where uh it it's not claiming for socialism in that abstract way but creating the organs of popular decision making of popular organizing of being able to collectively decide what one's future should hold of collectively uh organizing to enable you know the the young people to enable i mean we we see this in i mean a huge growth of of the of the of the women's movement mm-hmm. um but it's 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 them having 
being able to set the agenda and not having it set for them. And I think that's the, the, the real, real um, difficulty that, that we face, that, that uh, many of these left movements uh, have very little connection Mm. with mass struggles that are taking place. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and those struggles are not just in the factories. Uh, they're happening in all kinds of venues. And, and the ability to listen to, support, and nurture. And in fact, their primary task should be, uh, as so-called socialists, should be to help nurture the emergence of an of organic intellectuals, as Gramsci would put it, mm -hmm. those emerge out of the struggles, those who who are part of that, they belong to those communities, and who through their experiences in the struggle begin to uh, to grasp an understanding and a, and an and an evolution of Marxist ideas. It's not a dogma. It can't be seen as just. You know, that's it, everything's been resolved. I mean, we've, we've solved everything. Here's the good book. It, it's, it can't be dealt with like a religion. It has to be done organically. It has to be done to be able to create those, those conditions of popular organizing. And, you know, we've seen this happen in so many different places. Uh, and, and the reality is um, it, it will continue. I have no doubt in my mind that it will continue. The, the task is what kind of role should a, should a socialist or communist party play? It should not be either to be focused on seizing the state, nor should it be just espousing old dogma, but to actually start, as Marx said, start from the concrete analysis of the concrete world and, and build it from there. It can't happen overnight. But there are what the other interesting thing is that there are these things. There can be explosions that occur, which nobody who could mm -hmm. have predicted. I mean, you look at what happened in, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in, in Burkina Faso, in Sudan, uh, and, and, and many other places. <laughs> the, the reality is none of us could have predicted that would happen. And, and our task in those situations is to listen and to help support the kind of initiatives that emerge out of those popular organizations and not to denounce them because they're not socialist enough or pure enough. <laughs> One of my favorite saying is, sayings is, is that the left tends to be a bit like religion, you know. It, it's full of mysticism and begins in mist and ends in schism. 